The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Ministry Weekend with Zach Eswine. Well, uh, we, we pick up with this question, how do we care for those who struggle? How do we care? How do we show the welcome of Jesus? How do we um, invite someone to experience the care of the true shepherd when they are in their various forms of sadness and sorrow, little d depression, big d depression? It's no secret that uh, when it comes to caring for those who struggle, particularly in these areas that are not easily fixed, quickly solved, that uh, many of us are poor caregivers. And so the question matters to us, how do we care for those who struggle? Let's ask the Lord for his presence with us. Lord, thank you for lunch. Thank you for each other. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the rain. Thank you for your kind faithfulness to Charles and Susanna Spurgeon and how you enable your testimony in them to still minister to us today. We desire to grow in what it, you are like when you care for the downcast. We desire to follow your lead to know your instruction and your empowerment. And we ask that you grant us a teachable heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. Oh, he describes, he's describing harmful helpers. He says, oh, you should not feel like this, or oh, you should not speak such words nor think such thoughts. And then he warns such people who talk like that. Again, this is from a Sunday sermon. Quote, it is not easy to tell how another ought to feel and how another ought to act, he said. We are different, each one of us. But I'm sure there is one thing in which we are all brought to unite in times of deep sorrow namely, our sense of helplessness. Watch out for being too quick to judge another person in their sorrow. Instead, embrace what you have in common with them, our sense of helplessness as we face it. Ah, says one, I used to laugh at Mrs. So-and-so for being nervous. Now that I feel the torture myself, I am sorry that I was ever hard on her. Ah, says another, I used to think of such and such a person that he must be a fool to always be so gloomy and always to be so gloomy in his state of mind. But now I cannot help sinking into the same desponding frames and oh, I would to God that I had been more kind to him. Yes, we should feel more for the prisoner if we knew more about the prison. So when we begin to think about caring for others, uh, two quick things. Number one, remember to account for one's context. Remember to account for one's context. Slow your judgment down. Quote, when you see men faint, don't blame them. When he uses the word faint, he's not talking about a physical fainting. He often used this phrase, a fainting fit, to describe what it felt like internally in our fatigue and in our sorrow and despondency. When you see someone faint, do not blame them. Perhaps by their faintness, they have proved of what stuff they are made. They have done as much as flesh and blood can do, and therefore they are faint. You see, he talks about our ungenerous suspicions, that if we see someone in their weakness, we automatically assume they must have sinned. We automatically assume we're seeing them at their worst. As opposed to recognizing, you might be seeing someone, you're only seeing a glimpse of a story. And what you might be watching is the fruit of courage, the fruit of faithfulness in a fatigued person. Remember, second, it has required more faith for some to do less than you.
it has required more faith for some to do less than you. I think about um, a young man uh, in our congregation in his 30s with cerebral palsy sits in a chair uh, that he does life in and often sits right next to us uh, up in front during our worship services. What it has required for him just to get to church that morning because someone has to dress him, have helped him to go to the bathroom, to have fed him, to have brushed his teeth, to have brought him into the van with his chair, to have brought him there. And there he is uh, with vocal cords that don't work so well. And he is very patient to say something over and over and over again until you are able to catch what he's saying. And when the songs come on, if he knows them, he begins to sing. And the sing of the song might frighten a child. And it undoes me. Because he's praising God. Sometimes in a song, uh, he will lean back in his chair and spin. It's his way of celebrating before the Lord. Sometimes as I'm preaching, uh, you'll hear him turn and say to someone, what does he mean? What is he saying? What's the point? <laughs> you know? And at other times, you'll hear him say, after I've made a point, amen, he will say in our Presbyterian congregation. Sometimes he will say to me, Zach, I'm tired of being in this chair. And he'll just weep. And when he weeps, he weeps like a man. And other times he'll say, Zach, would you pray for me? Zach, I'm hungry for God. Would you help me grow? Well, it isn't just me. There's a number of folks who, just a part of his life in our congregation and he and ours, I'm trying to say that sometimes it takes more faith for some to seemingly accomplish less than you and me. And so to look upon such a person and think them weak, he may very well be mistaken. For if you and I were in that same situation, would we, in our chair, dance before the Lord with tears? There is great faith in that young man. Remember, it has required more faith for some to do less than you. Quote, some need not be afraid of the slough of despond. Charles Spurgeon was often drawing on all kinds of metaphor, particularly Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, where a pilgrim, the Christian, on his way through life goes through a slough of despond. It's like quicksand. Uh, despondency, or can find himself in Doubting Castle, being thrashed by giant despair. Bunyan's wise about the nature of the Christian life. You need not be afraid of the slough of despond, for they carry a slough within their own hearts and are never out of it, and it is never out of them. Therefore, there's much to admire and the perseverance required of these dear ones. 
trembling fellow pilgrims, we would play the harp for you. Now this is a reference to King David, with, to the anointed shepherd David playing the harp for King Saul. King Saul was tormented. David would play the harp. Saul would be calmed in his mind. So he's picking up, Spurgeon is, on that picture. Trembling fellow pilgrims, we would play the harp for you, that if possible you may forget your fears for a while. And if you cannot altogether rise superior to your glooms, yet may you, for this hour at least, take unto yourselves the wings of eagles and mount above the mists of doubt. You see his heart. I would take this away from you if I, if I could. I don't know if it will ever go away, but I hope to relate to you in such a way that when you're with me, you have one hour of rest from your gloom. Well, why are we not good at this? By and large, why, why is it that we have a hard time offering help to those in sorrow, particularly sorrows that stick and get stuck and last. Um, he says this, it is a fact that strong-minded people are very apt to be hard upon nervous folk, to speak harshly to people who are very depressed in spirit. They say, really, you ought to rouse yourself out of that state. The result is that a strong person says to a poor suffering one, stuff and nonsense, try to exert yourself. But when he does this, he does one of the most cruel things that can be said to the sufferer. By trying to help, he only inflicts additional pain. All right, here's a handful of, of things he has to say about why we're not good at helping. Number one, we judge others according to our circumstances rather than their circumstances. That seems common sense, doesn't it? But isn't that true? Quote, if you happen to get a disordered liver or your business should fail, I should not be surprised if nine parts out of ten of your wonderful faith should evaporate. Unquote. Jesus teaches us about those who lay up heavy burdens on others but do not lift a finger to help. Matthew 23, verse 4. Woe to you, he says, Jesus. Woe to you. You lay up heavy burdens on people. He's talking to the Bible people. He's talking to you and me, people like us. Woe to you. You lay up heavy burdens upon people, but don't lift a finger to help them. That's our Lord Jesus. So, number two. We still think that trite sayings or a raised voice can heal deep wounds. Quote, a person may have a great spiritual sorrow and someone who does not at all understand his grief may prefer to him a consolation which is far too slight. Like a physician who offers a common ointment for a deep wound. We say to a person in deep distress things which have really aggravated him and his malady too. And then he quotes from Proverbs 25, which we looked at earlier. Whoever sings a song to a heavy heart, it's like one who takes off her garment on a cold day. Sometimes we just, we don't know what to say and we say silly things. Sometimes we think we understand and we just don't. And so we offer sort of a, a trite healing or, as we mentioned earlier, we raise our voice as if that has medicinal quality. Number three, we try to control what should be rather than surrender to what is. It's very difficult to remember that this isn't heaven. And we seem always desirous that people relate ideally and perfectly as if heaven has arrived and we're no longer in the fallen world. He says this, we must not judge harshly 
as if things were as we would theoretically arrange them. But we must deal with things as they are, and it cannot be questioned that some of the best believers are at times sorely put to it to know whether they are believers at all. Uh, I can say to someone, you shouldn't do that. King David, it's the time of war. You should be out with your army. You should not be there on that roof with Bathsheba over there. You shouldn't do that. Problem. He already has. You shouldn't do it. Already have. You shouldn't. Did. So what are we going to do now as Christians? Just do this for the next 40 years? You shouldn't. Already happened. Isn't the question now, but I have, so now what? That changes the way a preacher preaches such a passage, you see. And a counselor looks at such a passage. One approach says this. It was the time for war uh, when kings are with their men, but David, you know, he's staying behind. And so the message would be the things you should not do. Number one, don't be like David. Be where you're supposed to be. Number two, don't look at the women who are around you. Keep your eyes on the covenant of women you're supposed to have. Number three, don't go on the roof in the first place. Turn the TV off. Unplug the stuff. Be where you're supposed to be. Problem with that whole way of approaching that passage is David is already not what he's supposed to be. He's already done what he's not supposed to do. And the question is, how is it that God will be faithful to that man. And now suddenly we're looking at good news. And so we try to control what should be rather than surrender to what is. In this fallen world, as we await our Lord's return. Four, we resist humility regarding our lack of experience. A lot of us just aren't acquainted with grief like this. A lot of us aren't accustomed to encountering something we can't fix. A lot of us aren't accustomed to, you know, we're like the little train who could. This is, this is, what, this is what we, a part of our folklore. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And therefore, we overcome the mountain. But in real life, there will eventually be a mountain that little train cannot climb, no matter how much positive thinking he has. Sometimes we're just, uh, sometimes we are not so much different than uh, our neighbors who say you should never go to the hospital, you should never go see a doctor. If you only had enough faith, you would be fine. Our version of it isn't with physicality. Our version of it is with sadness and sorrow and depression. Our version is if you just had enough faith, you wouldn't be sad. And at that point, we sound a whole lot like our Christian scientist neighbors rather than biblical Christians. It is good for us to say, we just don't know what to say or do. Here's what he says. There are some people who cannot comfort others, even though they try to do so, because they never had any trouble themselves. It is a difficult thing for a man who has had a life of uninterrupted prosperity to sympathize with another whose path has been exceedingly rough. The Apostle Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 1.4, we comfort others... Out of the comfort we've received. So instead of comfort being this idea where we throw something at people, we speak something at people, we actually are bringing to them, we are inside the situation too. We ourselves have needed comfort. 
We ourselves have needed comfort. And we've received it from the Lord. And that which we've received, we offer. Now, can you imagine if you experienced that? I mean, this is what you're meant to experience. You are in despondency of soul, and someone comes to you, and they're not judging you according to their experiences. They're listening to you as you encounter your own. And they're not uh, using trite sayings or loud voices to heal you. They're present with you, waiting with you, almost like they're aching with you, looking to the Lord with you. And they're not trying to tell you that all of this should be better and you should be something other than you're not. They're recognizing it is what it is and now what do we do as we look to the Lord? And they are teachable and humble about that because they themselves are not pretending that they fully understand everything you experience. Have you ever had a friend or someone relate to you like that? Humbly with you? It might even be, you see, that uh, there is a sin lurking in the midst of your grief. But the wise caregiver waits on the sin. There's plenty of time for that when the crisis moment has passed. Perhaps you doubt me. Let me give you an example. You're in the emergency room. And a, a mother's young child has just died. The doctor's just given the word. You're there as a caregiver. She starts to fall back. You hold her. Then she vomits. And then in a moment, she begins to cry out, Oh God, oh God, oh God! And maybe she cusses. Maybe she says, I'm angry with you. Maybe she starts to yell at God. Listen, Job's friend, I know you want to rebuke her because she shouldn't say, oh God, and tell him he's not there. May I say to you, that is not the time or place. Would you, dear Christian, need someone to be in your face in that moment, in that emergency room, three minutes into that news, telling you you should not do this or that? No, because the Savior who knows everything that's wrong with your life is so patient to wait and point it out. I'm 48 years old, and I'm just beginning to see things about my life that other friends of mine will say, yeah, yeah, we've, we've seen that in you. <laughs> and the Lord Jesus has already known. It's not like it's a new sin in my life. It's a fact that he's been so gracious. There's been so much else to point out. He's just taking his time and only bringing into our life what we can handle. I have more to say to you, he said to his disciples, but can't handle that right now. So we know that that moment in that emergency room isn't the last word in our relationship or our life together. We got years to go here. And one thing at a time and in its place, God can handle a grieving woman crying out to him. Listen, at least she's crying out to him. And this is what we're meant to receive, this weeping with those who weep. Ecclesiastes 7.4 says this, when someone encounters adversity, we are meant to reflect. When adversity happens, reflect. Ecclesiastes 7.14. When good things happen, celebrate, praise. When adversity happens, pause. Meditate. Slow down. Reflect. 
wow, this is a remarkable, remarkable provision of the kind of experience God intends for us to have when we encounter the very things that he has died to save us from and ultimately redeem us from. We're not good at helping because some of these things. A second big heading, we're not good at helping, not only because of our personal judgments, but also our view of the Bible. I should say our use of the Bible, not our view, our use of the Bible. We have a problem called simple-ism. Simple-ism. Maybe you've heard of moral-ism. Moral-ism. That I tell you, moralism is, I tell you three things to do, expect you to do them, uh, as if uh, you yourself on your own power can do them. Moralism uh, treats you as if you uh, forgets that you're a branch who needs a vine, and that branches cannot bear fruit and show themselves to be disciples without the vine. Jesus taught this. So moralism says, here are three ways to be a good dad. One, two, three, go. You can do it. You got it. You got this. Pull up your own bootstraps. You have all the interior resources you need. This is all you. God's done what he can. It's up to you now. That's moralism, as if you don't need the gospel for your sanctification. Simpleism is reducing complexity being trite, being naive. It's the simpleton in the wisdom literature. A simpleton looks at a bird that's red in St. Louis and says, ah, that's a cardinal. And then assumes, because he's named that bird as a cardinal, that he understands everything about cardinals. That he knows about their flight patterns, He knows about their food. He knows about their life expectancy, their mating habits, how they have their children, how they care for their young. It also assumes that he knows that particular cardinal in general, in specific. Name it. Cardinal. Move on. Not seeing the uniqueness of that cardinal. Wow, there's a clip on its left wing. I wonder what the story is about that. Cardinals are usually a little more red than that one is. wonder what's going on there. It's the kind of thing that Jesus encountered when he was receiving the woman who washed his feet, the sinner who washed his feet with her hair, using the tools of her trade to kiss his feet and wash his feet with her hair. And they said to him, the religious people said to him, if you knew what sort of woman this is, you wouldn't allow this to happen. Do you remember that in Luke 7? Sort. They see a woman and all they see is a kind, a sort, and they move on. They judge her. But do you remember how that story goes? May I tell you a story Jesus said? Do you think adults ever got tired of Jesus saying once upon a time? How would you feel? Do you feel that that's pandering, that that's watering down? Once upon a time, And then he tells a story of someone who owed a debt and then asked which of the ones, you know, would be uh, more thankful, the debt that's been paid. And then it says this in Luke 7, then looking uh, at the woman, Jesus said to them. So here's how it would work. I'm looking at you, I... I'm now looking at her. Do you see this woman? Can you imagine if you're the woman? Do you see this woman? You who talk in sorts. I think it would have been the first time in her life she would have ever been looked at a man with pornless eyes, looked at by a man completely purely. He had no interest in undressing her, no interest in 
judging her on the basis of her makeup or lack of it, the eyeliner that must have been dripping down her cheek from just having kissed his feet, nothing like that. It must have been a moment where she was seen as if seen by the one who created her and cherished her and will die for her and rise for her and raise her again. Do you see this woman? The rebuke is palpable if you knew what sort this was. Do you see this woman? Are you ready for that confrontation by your Savior with you? You who hold the Bible and care for people and name sorts. Do you not know that when it says God opposes the proud, that includes you and me? And on the flip side, isn't it the wonderful Wonderful freedom because you know what you've done and you know what sort you are and you know what you've been. And the Lord, the Lord sees you. That clip on your wing, that decaying color, and you are seen. You and I are meant to receive this and the simpleton doesn't offer it. How do we get to the symbolism? We get to it from a misunderstanding about the Bible. So, we're adults here. I'll say some things. Look into it for the next six months. See if you want to agree or not. It's using the book of Proverbs as if we don't have the book of Job or Ecclesiastes. The book of Proverbs just says plainly, do good things, good things will happen. Do bad things, bad things will happen. Truisms. Then you read Job, which is a whole story about a good man and bad things happen. And then you read Ecclesiastes, which is ongoing. I saw, I saw the wicked receive justice, the righteous receive injustice. You see, Job's friends who struggled to help, Job's friends were right in many ways. If they read Proverbs, why, they see Job, they read verses from the book of Proverbs. Job obviously has rebellion in his heart. Proverbs says so. Job, you have a problem, repent. Only, in this case, that's not what's going down. God's already told us. We've been allowed behind the curtain to see what's happening. Job is a righteous man. All this stuff that's happening to him has to do with some grievance between Satan and God. Not because Job himself has sinned. So maybe eight out of ten times, we read a proverb, we look at a situation, bada-bing, boom, formula, there it goes. But two out of ten times, you completely missed the mark. Seven out of ten times, we've completely missed the mark. We need heavy doses of Job and Ecclesiastes in order to interpret Proverbs and vice versa. You might think of it this way. When you were learning English, uh, what is it, something like I before E except after C and something about A and neighbors and way, something like that, what is it? I before E, except after C, and sometimes Y, except with words that start with something. I don't remember. <laughs> it's written here somewhere, but I don't know where that is. So, Ah, here it is. And sometimes Y, or with sounds like neighbor and way. Yeah, anyway. So you learn English, right? And then you realize, oh, there are exceptions.
so we want to quit. Ah, I just thought I had it. Now you're telling me there's exceptions to the rules? Well, in an analogy, that's what we're getting at spiritually. Proverbs are the norms, the basic rules. Job and Ecclesiastes give us the exceptions. And so we will resist symbolism in our care to the degree that we're saturated and immersed not only in Proverbs, but in their bookends. So that we can look at a situation, have categories for it, but resist quick judgments about sorts. And listen, and wait. The disciples were like this too, not just Job's friends. The disciples too. I mean, think about it. When the disciples saw a man born blind, what did they assume? Sin. When uh, the disciples saw uh, a tower, this is Luke 13, a tower fell and people died. And the question of Jesus was, who sinned? If a person was sick, if a person was a child, if a child wanted to see Jesus, what do the disciples assume you do? Rebuke. Keep them from Jesus. Jesus interrupts. No, let the children come to me. If the disciples saw a Samaritan, what are they supposed to think? Unclean. Jesus says, no, let me tell you several stories with the Samaritans as the hero of my story. If you saw a Gentile, a leper, unclean, unclean. Uh, there is this pushback, you see, from the Lord Jesus who is no simpleton but wise. And some of us can grab on to formulas because it makes us feel in control for a while. It's like someone just gave us an instruction set. If you just follow rule number one and rule number two and rule number three, presto bingo, everything will work out fine. That's why very few of us read the wisdom literature of the Bible. We don't get it. And what that means is it hasn't yet gotten us. It's not yet into us. So that we can follow our Lord Jesus in this. Well, I have been Job's friend. I have been these disciples. I have been a jerk in Jesus' name. Have you ever been? I have been trite, simplistic, naive, formulaic. I've raised my voice. I've used God talk. I've tried all manner of things to handle something that can only be fixed by time and patience through Jesus Christ and maybe not until he comes again. And here's the wonder then. The wonder is that you and I, Job-like, friend-like people, we... We get to learn from the patience of the Lord who sees us as we are and learn to offer his hospitality to others that somehow when people experience you, they're experiencing some true resonance of the Lord himself. It is the way he would come to them. Remember, remember, he never says woe to you to the woman at the well the way he says to those hard-hearted Pharisees. And remember, it took him 23 chapters to get to the woe to you with those hard-hearted Pharisees. He was so patient, forbearing. Why do we struggle to help? Well, we make quick judgments. We try to use a simplistic, a simpleton view of the Bible and life. And Jesus delivers us from looking at these sorts and seeing an individual the way he sees them. Little bird, is your wing clipped and people have looked at you, labeled you, identified you, and moved on? Can I tell you, Jesus sees the clipped wing you have and pauses to hear you? hold your wing, to look you in the eye, 
marvelous. Two helps that help in our final few minutes together. Number one, and these are <laughs> these stretch us. Number one, silence. Silences are equally important as sentences in your ministry. Job's friends got it right in the beginning. See, the powerful thing about that book, as some of you know, is that so much of what they say is true. Their theology is mostly sound. They're just using it all wrong. But when they first arrived on the scene, imagine if you are called in to be the pastor, you just get the call that a person in your congregation not only had multiple family members just die in one accident, but their whole livelihood is gone. And you receive the call, and you're the one to go and be the pastor. You're the counselor. You're the on-scene caregiver. What do you say? I mean, really? I mean, really? Tearing of clothes. Ashes. A week of quiet. They just, those friends when they first came, man, they were on it. They just sat there and said nothing. All they offered was the ministry of presence, just human presence. Uh, a signal, a gracious love token of the presence of the Lord. And then they got impatient. <laughs> but that goes a long way in our helping of people when sorrows get stuck is wordless presence. Man, to go a whole week, really? Yeah, I mean, think of it. 30 years from now, would that seem like much? No. Man, to go 48 hours, 48 hours with just being present. Yeah. You get to learn how to do that. Just the way he is with us. The second thing that's different for us is poetry. Ah, poetry. <laughs> I'm, aware of, I'm aware of where I'm standing and where I teach, and I'm saying into a particular culture, we need more silence and more poetry. <laughs> because sufferers of depression lean on metaphors. One expert in this area expl explains it this way. Depression is a condition that is almost unimaginable to anyone who's not known it. Its diagnosis depends upon metaphors. Charles Spurgeon uses metaphors rampantly when he talks in these areas. This is, listen to some of the ways he describes depression. We are like those who traverse a howling desert. We endure winters. We are bruised as a cluster, trodden in the wine press. We are in a foggy day. We are amid storms. We are like those caught in a hurricane. The waters roll continually wave upon wave over the top of us. We are like those haunted with dread in a dungeon. We are sitting in a chimney corner under an accumulation of pains and weaknesses and sorrows. We sit in darkness like one who is chilled and benumbed and over whom death is slowly creeping. We are panting warriors, poor fainting soldiers, crying out for relief from this long fight of affliction. Historian Stanley Jackson wrote about this necessary use of metaphor. No literal statement, no one-word diagnosis, he discovered, was able to describe adequately the diversity of our sadnesses. Two reoccurring word pictures are most common. People will say they're in a state of darkness or they're weighed down. Spurgeon looked to the Bible itself and noticed the language, the dictionary of metaphor 
given for the sorrowing in the scriptures themselves. Psalm 88, my soul is full of troubles. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. You overwhelm me with all your waves. Psalm 69, let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep shallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. His sermon titles use metaphors from the scriptures, such as, here's some of his sermon titles, the frail leaf from Job 13, the wounded spirit from Proverbs 18, the fainting soul from Psalm 42, the bruised reed from Isaiah 42, Jesus, the man of sorrows, Isaiah 53. Why metaphor? Why poetry? Number one, it leaves room. It gives room. It doesn't propose to cover every angle, understand every possibility, or explain every detail. It doesn't require only one possible explanation. Language that proposes to do this with depression exposes its ignorance of the situation at hand. You need language capable of uh, holding, gathering up all the nuance of this kind of sorrow. And so, it allows this nuance since each person's experience with depression differs, metaphor allows for diverse expression. It also requires further thought and explanation. Metaphor keeps the conversation going. And so, and so if I ask you, if you're a caregiver of someone in depression, this is a part of now what you say. In the midst of silences and all the things resisting symbolism that we've talked about, you get to say, what's it like? And someone will try to tell you. It's like and what they're going to give you is some kind of metaphor. It's like I'm drowning. It's like I'm tied to a chair with tape over my mouth, and I can't get any words out for anybody to hear me. And then at that point, you get to ask, you get to say, man, that must be overwhelming. And then you go quiet again for a while. The language of poetry from the scripture gives us a language of metaphor. C.S. Lewis spoke about this in his language of religion, his essay, The Language of Religion. He said there are three kinds of language, scientific, ordinary, and poetic. Scientific language is the language of precision. We might say theological language or something, precision. Ordinary language, it's just ordinary language. Jesus wept. Poetic language gives you the experience of a thing. Scientific language is necessary, the language of precision. If you are, uh, if, if I need to figure out um, whether I can paint outside, I need to know the precise temperature that it's going to be. It gets too cold in Missouri. You can't, if you're a contractor, you can't lay down concrete if it's too cold. You got to know the precision of the temperature. So, you know, it's uh, nine degrees outside. That's a precise language. Or it's Paul making an argument on the basis of the singular versus the plural ver use of the word seed in Galatians 3. Ordinary language, it's cold outside. Nine degrees, scientific language. It's cold outside, ordinary language. Poetic language. It is so cold outside that even an owl with all of its feathers is shivering. It is so cold outside that it's like it will peek through your coat and grab your skin and scratch it. And somehow, 
the poetry, you see, the metaphor, is accurate language. But it enables us to feel, to experience the thing. If at, at, our, at a seminary in Missouri where I teach, a, a, a student from Ghana, Africa, in late September, early October, first time in the United States, has a full coat and a full, I call it toboggan, full cap down over his head. And you get to try to say to that student in October, you know, January's coming. <laughs> That's ordinary language. That has no experience, does not resonate at all with them. So you say, it's going to get down to like three degrees with a 20 below wind chill factor. Precise language. Doesn't get at it. You know, and then it's what we said before, that coat is going to feel like a, a summer shirt. That coat is not going to be able to withstand the onslaught of icy soldiers that are coming to take over your body. <laughs> you know? And the language, you see. Now, some of us get nervous about this imaginative language, so in our last couple of minutes, I'm turning to Colossians 3 to show you the Apostle Paul arguing with imaginative language. We're just not used to seeing it. Verse 1, Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, That's past tense. But I'm standing right here. And you're sitting right there in front of me. He's speaking accurately and truly, but not literally. I have been raised. That's picture language. If he had said, you will be raised, well, that's literal, right? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things that are above. One, two, three, go. If we take that literally, we start trying to, okay, where's the stairs? Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I, we cannot physically see that. To seek above where he is is accurate, true, imaginative language. For you have died. And we explain he's, remaining, he's meaning spiritually. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written this letter to them. They're still alive. Set your minds on things that are above. We're so accustomed to this language, we don't realize this is metaphor. How can you literally set your mind on something? Where is your mind? Uh, reach in there, pick it up, go set it on something. Set your mind on things, on things that are above. Do you understand you're reading metaphor? And he is reasoning with you accurately, truly, inerrantly, authoritatively, sufficiently. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You can see me, can't you? I'm not hidden. And yet I am. It, it is when the Lord Jesus said, I am a door. He's not a, a, a door. But he is. 
It's an imaginative speech, poetic expression. Put to death whatever is earthly in you. You can't, we, we don't literally go kill something. It is metaphor to call you into command of how you look at these various things. In these, verse 7, you too once walked. When you were living in them. You see. Poetic speech. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote two books on pain. This is expressive of it. The one book is The Problem of Pain. The Problem of Pain is like you're in a laboratory. It is, a, it is a, a literal language about diagnosing a problem. But then there is a grief observed, which is his diary that he kept when his wife Joy died. Both address the problem of grief and pain, and they are remarkably, profoundly different. In the problem of pain, you have the professor, theologian, apologist who diagnoses, addresses, gives reasons for hope. In a grief observed, you have a husband whose wife was taken by cancer telling you that you are sitting in the dentist chair of God and the drilling goes on and on and on telling you that if you bang on the door of heaven with all of your helplessness, he only keeps the door closed. He is there and says nothing. And you know what? When you're in the midst of pain, his book, The Problem of Pain, is not much help. It sounds callous and cold. If you're in the midst of pain, his diary of pain gives you language. Same guy addressing the same issue, offering ultimately the same gospel hope. But one uses precise and ordinary language and the other uses poetic and ordinary language. And when we're dealing with sorrows and sadnesses, the language of Scripture is full of metaphor. And Charles Spurgeon invites us to that use of metaphor with one another. That may not mean you have to go out and start reading poetry, but it does mean that we become more comfortable with a poetic way of speaking that can capture the grief. A final thought. A strange thing, I studied the songwriters of September 11th. This is an illustration of what we're just saying. And you know, when September 11th took place all those years ago, multiple songwriters sought to capture the moment as artists would to give expression to it. And you know, uh, pop musicians wrote all manner of songs about September 11th, and they just went nowhere. But country music, country artists who wrote songs about September 11th stuck, stayed. And Bruce Springsteen, whatever you think of him, his album The Rising, because Bruce Springsteen is a storyteller. And those songs are all stories. The pop music is usually baby, baby. That kind of genre and language did not have the capacity to handle the depth of expressing September 11th. But the songwriters and genres that tell stories were able to capture it. Bruce Springsteen's song, Missing, 
is, is probably the best expression of what it feels like to lose one you've loved that I've ever heard. And he, to my knowledge, doesn't follow Jesus. The closest would be Charlie Peacock, the Christian artist, as he wrote about the death of his dad. Language suitable for the occasion. This is why Charles Spurgeon said that some theologians, some great theologians are powerless as pastors because they cannot adapt to the kind of language necessary for the thing at hand. It's still true, accurate language, you see. It's just metaphor. What a gift from God he gives us to give us language to, that has a capacity for the sorrows of our soul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.